This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Let's pray together this morning. Our most faithful Father, we can't help but give you thanks. Uh, We celebrate this morning that your love endures forever, that it never fails, it never gives up, and never runs out on us. We admit, however, that we have failed, at times epically failed. Nevertheless, you've lavished grace upon grace upon us, and even so, we haven't surpassed the depths of your grace or mercy. And Son, we thank you for loving us, for giving of yourself, and for giving yourself for us. You're our hope today, and we we hope that we would become more like you. We pray, Spirit, that you would stir within us and among us, that you would unlock our ears and cleanse our hearts and cleanse our hands, that you would tug at our hearts and that you would do your thing. We pray that you would transform us, that you would change us, that you would make us new. And we pray all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, I was wondering... Have y'all heard the one about the Indians gathering firewood? All right, so one fall, a group of Indians were living on a remote reservation, and they asked their new chief if the winter was going to be cold or if it was going to be mild. And the thing was, since he was an Indian chief who had never lived on the res, but instead had grown up in modern society, he had never been taught the old Indian secrets. When he looked at the sky, unlike others, he just couldn't tell what the weather was going to be. And so, just to be on the safe side of things, he told his tribe that the winter indeed was going to be cold and that everyone should collect firewood to be prepared. And also, uh, being a practical leader, after several days he got an idea. He said, I should get in touch with the National Weather Service and ask them if the coming winter is going to be cold. And so he left the res and he went and he made, uh, he went to a phone booth and he made a, a phone call. And the meteorologist said, you know, it looks like the winter is going to be quite cold indeed. And so the chief went back to his people and he told them to collect even more wood in order to be prepared. And a week later, he called the National Weather Service and again he asked, is it going to be a, a very cold winter? Yep. The meteorologist replied, it's definitely going to be a very cold winter. And the chief again went back to his people and he ordered them to collect every scrap of wood that they could find. And two weeks later, he called the National Weather Service again. Sir, are you absolutely sure that the winter is going to be very cold? Absolutely, the man replied. It's going to be one of the coldest winters ever. How can you be so sure? The chief asked. Simple, the weatherman replied. The Indians are collecting wood like crazy. (laughs) So if you've been around the church or read much scripture at all, uh, you likely know that throughout scripture, there are many different titles given to God. Maybe you've uh, heard Hebrew titles like El Shaddai, which means the Lord God Almighty, or Adonai, which we've sung, Lord is what that means, or Jehovah Nisi, uh, the Lord my banner, Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals, uh, El Olam, 
the everlasting God, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Shalom, the Lord is peace. There are a plethora of names and titles and descriptions that apply to God throughout the Old and New Testaments. One common descriptor is of God as Father. And in Deuteronomy 131, he's described as a parent or a father who carries his Israelite child in his arms. In Isaiah, he's portrayed with mothering traits. He gives birth to and nurses his Israelite child, just as a mother does. And in Jeremiah 2.2, God remembers his engagement with the Israelites, who may make up his future bride. And in Hosea, he's portrayed as the husband of the Israelites. And in the first few chapters of Hosea, in fact, his Israelite bride, she's gone astray. She's been unfaithful to God. And as theologian uh, Dr. John Sanders has noted, Despite her turn away, God seeks her out and desires her restoration. God is willing to humiliate himself by taking back this disreputable woman as his wife. In Hosea, uh, God is described as a husband, but you know the typical husband would divorce his wife. And it's difficult to imagine a husband who would do what God does, for it would mean self-humiliation in the face of one's community. God, however, is the true husband whose ways are not our ways. And God suffers the humiliation and he risks taking back his unfaithful bride in the hope that the relationship can develop into one of mutual love and respect. And this image of God as husband, it's central to scripture. It's wrapped up in covenant language and covenant imagery. God has made a vow and a promise, and as a faithful husband, he aims to keep it. But as wayward followers, they are the problem. They are consistently breaking the covenant. They are repeatedly being unfaithful to their husband, God. Now, I want you to keep uh, that in mind because from Genesis to Revelation, that's a very common theme across Scripture. And here's why I want you to keep in mind. I want you to be able to tell someone plainly and simply what Revelation is about. If you're ever asked, I want you to be able to share that effectively. And what I just said is critical to that. Right? You can with great effectiveness. You can. You can tell someone what Revelation is about in less than a minute. And the reality is right, that not only do most Christians avoid Revelation, but most have no idea how to describe it to someone else. So I want to equip you to do that. I want to give you two answers. One's a short answer and one's a longer answer. So here's the short answer. If someone asks you what Revelation is about, Here's an answer in just four words. You've heard me say it before. Jesus is the center. Or Jesus at the center. That's what Revelation is all about. right? But if that's your final answer, if you just say that Jesus is center, Jesus at the center, they're probably going to ask more questions like, center of what? Oh, of course you could say the church, the throne room, the new heaven and new earth, basically everything. So all of you should be able to give that short answer to anyone, right? But here's a fuller answer, an answer with a little more length of what the text is about, of what Revelation is about. So if you go back and you read the Old Testament, you find that there are many descriptions of God. One of the main ones, as I said, is of God as a husband. And as a husband, he desires this faithful bride. He wants humanity to be his faithful bride. But there's a problem. Humanity keeps being unfaithful. They keep 
breaking their vow to God. And eventually, God can tolerate it no longer. Moses, he broke a vow. Abraham, he broke a vow. Vows or covenants kept getting broken. And so, as we've talked about before, God decided that the only way for the covenant not to be broken between him and humanity was to become a human himself. And so he did. The father sent his son, Jesus, to become a human. He kept the covenant perfectly on behalf of humanity. Jesus did two things. One, he invited humans to join him in keeping the covenant. And two, he would, he, well, he would call this group the church uh, and they would be God's bride. But two, he didn't hang them out to dry or leave them to fail. He sent God's spirit to live in them and to help them to be holy and to be faithful. And that continues on in to Revelation. In fact, that's pretty much what Revelation is about. It's about God being faithful to his bride and expecting her to do the same for him, to be faithful. But how did they do that? How do they be faithful? By keeping Jesus at the center of the church and their lives. Jesus is the center. That's what Revelation is all about. It's not about army tanks and helicopters and microchips and a rapture and an end time war and Armageddon. It's just not. It's about God's bride being faithful by keeping Jesus at the center. Now, along the way, the bride, she'll face tough times. She'll be confronted with temptations. She'll have people trying to distract her and lure her away. She'll have to be discerning because uh, there's another bride, a group who longs to interrupt the work of Christ in her midst and to pull her away. And that imposter bride is anti-church or anti-Christ. But the bride is to remain strong and faithful because the Spirit is empowering her. And this, my friends, is a much more sensible explanation of Revelation. It isn't, it isn't terrifying. It isn't incomprehensible. It isn't odd. It isn't disturbing. In fact, it's clear. It's easy to understand. It's appealing. And frankly, it's edifying. And I have to be honest with you. Revelation has strengthened my own faith immensely. It's increased my fidelity to Christ. I've discovered that of all of the works of Holy Scripture, it's probably, Revelation's probably the most Trinitarian. I'm growing to love Revelation more and more. And my desire to go deep into it has only intensified. And mostly, I've been reminded of that simple truth. Christ is the center. Christ at the center. And there's a sense, I think, in which that reminder should never, ever get old. Week in and week out, that should be on our radars. And so I hope you're able, in a nutshell, to describe Revelation to some folks like that if you're ever asked. Because I think people are interested. I think people are curious. And they don't need these sort of long-winded, fanciful interpretations. They need a sensible, calm, and responsible explanation. And so today, as we move toward our focal passage, Revelation 9, 1 to 12, we're in Revelation 9, we're going to read some verses that seem quite vivid and quite wild. But as with everything we've encountered thus far in Revelation, we'll see that what at first might appear kind of crazy is at the end of the day pretty easy to understand. And so with that, we're going to turn to the text. Uh, and here's what Revelation 9, 1 through 12 has to say. And the fifth angel blew the trumpet. And I saw a star from the sky had fallen onto the land and it was given to him the key of the shaft of the abyss. And he opened the shaft of the abyss and up went smoke from the shaft as smoke of a great furnace. Both the sun was darkened and the air from the smoke of the shaft. 
And out of the smoke came locusts into the land, and they were given authority as the scorpions have authority of the land. And it was said to them that they should neither do injustice to the grass of the land, nor everything green, nor every tree, except those people who did not, except to those people who did not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. And he gave this order to them, that they should not kill them, but that they would torment them for five months. And their torment would be as the torment of a scorpion whenever he might strike a person. And in those days, people will seek death and they'll not find it. And they'll desire to die. And death will flee from them. Both the likenesses of the locusts were like the horsemen preparing to go into battle. And upon their heads as crowns like gold and their faces as faces of people they they had both hair as the hair of women and their teeth were as those of alliance and they had breastplates as breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was the sound was as the sound of a chariot of many horses running into battle and they had tails like scorpions and stingers on their wings uh, on their wings was authority to do injustice to do uh, to do injustice to people for five months. They had over them the king, the messenger of the abyss. The name given to him was in Hebrew, Abaddon, and in Greek the name he had was Apollyon. The first woe came forth. Behold, the second woe is still to come after these things. Alright, so there are several things that I want to draw your attention to here. First, there's this figure uh, named Abaddon, or in Greek, Apollyon. And interestingly, this was typically associated with a place, Abaddon or Apollyon, that is the abyss, rather than a person. So it seems that Revelation may be personifying the place, the abyss in some ways. But it may also be that the, the case that Abaddon or Apollyon is the leader of the abyss. I think that's right. The leader of the place of the dwelling of the unrighteous. The part of the underworld where the unrighteous live and are ruled. This figure, Abaddon, he's a tyrant. And as a tyrant, he produces other tyrants. He's bloodthirsty. He's thirsty for death. He hungers for devastation. And in verses 1 to 4, destruction and devastation are enacted. But here's the thing, and I alluded to this a bit uh, last week. If you read closely, you see that Abaddon is only to harm his own followers. Notice again what verse 4 says. And it was said to them that they should neither do injustice to the grass of the land, nor everything green, nor every tree, except to those people who didn't have the seal of God upon their foreheads. Abaddon is only to, able to torment his own followers who don't have the seal of God. And that is their heart and their, their heart mind hasn't been changed. This has massive consequences, friends. Remember, the underworld, what we now call hell, had two realms. One for the unrighteous dead and one for the righteous dead. And the righteous dead, uh, believers, right, those part of the bride, are not being tormented by Abaddon. In fact, as the Apostles' Creed, along with scriptures like James, remind us, Jesus went to the righteous dead and declared victory to them and over them when, while he was dead for three days. And so they don't experience the devastation. Why? Because they didn't commit their lives to that devastation or its follower or its leader. They didn't reject Christ and sign up to be someone against Christ, someone with a posture of being anti-Christ or in place of Christ. Remember, too, that God's seal isn't a physical thing. You'll recall that several weeks ago I talked about the forehead. And I was saying that the face is like the outside of a house. 
right? The forehead is the outward symbol of the mind. And as you know, the mind and heart were intimately connected in ancient thought. So the forehead becomes an outward symbol of the heart too, or even better, the mind heart. And so to have the mark of Christ is to have a transformed mind heart. To have the mark of the beast is to have a mind heart that's unformed or deformed in such a way that it's rejected Christ and embraced all that's opposed to him, all that is anti-him, all that seeks to stand in place of him. And that's what it means to be anti-Christ. I'll talk more about that in the future, by the way. But you know, I had a friend email me this week. It was kind of crazy. He was asking me, uh, if Bill Gates was the Antichrist because of this new microchip program that Bill Gates is working on. Now look, Scripture never ever speaks about Bill Gates. He never, it never speaks about microchips. Right, so it's nowhere in there. It's just silly. Is Bill Gates the Antichrist? No. There is no one person or institution that's the Antichrist. It's just not. But I'll say this. Anyone opposed to Christ or who seeks to set themselves up in place of Christ in his kingdom is patently antichrist that can be anyone famous or not but there's not a single antichrist figure other than those people who are grouped together that form the imposter bride in fact the new testament elsewhere talks about antichrists again more on that in the future but i just want you to know that you should avoid those wacky theories and interpretations the seal of god after all as we've learned is not a physical mark or a physical seal it's a speech act it's god's solidifying work in our lives in a, in in the presence of his bride now something else we see here is that the imposter bride or the poser bride is clearly an imitator and if we look at verses 7 to 11 we see that they have a leader and have taken on all sorts of traits that are imita imitative but notice first of all in verse 7 that the locusts are linked with the horsemen and i would argue in fact they are the four horsemen just being described differently at this, this time. They're being described like the plagues of Egypt. But look what they're doing in these verses. They're donning crowns. They're trying to look like humans, like people. They're trying to imitate a lion, etc. But they're also trying to instigate battle and devastation that leads to death. They have a ruler who hates them and thrives on suffering. And unlike the messenger, the Holy Spirit, their ruler is the messenger of the abyss. That's the language it uses. This ruler messenger torments his own people for five months. Now, this is the second woe. But here's the big takeaway, friends. The bride of Christ, she's protected and covered through all this. She's untouchable. Her bridegroom is protecting her. And really, this is quite amazing to read. God has his bride's back. She can't be harmed. She'll be all right. As long as she's faithful, she has no worries. And that friend should cause us to hold fast in our allegiance to our bridegroom. You know, I often hear it said that we can't repay Christ for what he did for us. That's true. But there's more to the story. What I mean is this. We will always stand in need before God. We, we couldn't overcome sin on our own. So thus we owe Christ. Can we repay him? No, not in full, but in part? Yeah. How? Well, with our lives. We devote our lives to him. We owe him all we've got. We owe him ourselves. And so we pledge our allegiance to him and him alone. And this point becomes really meaningful when we understand one of the cultural elements of the ancient world. It was called the patronage system. This was one of the societal staples of antiquity. 
the patronage system existed primarily because citizens had different levels of rank and status and wealth. And in a nutshell, the patronage system, it consists of two kinds of people, patrons and clients. Now, patrons were those with goods or money or rank and status. They, they for instance, could own and run a business. The workers that they would hire would be called clients. But it moves beyond work. A father was often seen as a patron and his children as clients. A teacher was a patron and his students were clients. An emperor was a patron and all of the citizens were clients. And of course, this became a way to talk theology. God was the patron and all humans were clients. And the thing is, some clients are good and others aren't. Some clients are faithful and others aren't. Another word for patron, the patron of a client, was a benefactor. And that, that term, it's taken from Latin, which means essentially to make good. A benefactor can make life good for clients, the benefitters. God was viewed in antiquity as the patron, the benefactor of humanity. He promised to make good on his covenants, make good on his vows. But the opposite of a good patron, a benefactor, was a malefactor. Also, from Latin, it essentially means to make bad. And you get this image from Revelation 9, 1-12 of God, ruler of the throne room, ruler of the church, and ruler of all creation. You get this image of him as a benefactor. And then Abaddon, he's the ruler of the abyss. He's a malefactor. He desires death and destruction for his followers. And we see from these verses, too, that in time, his own followers begin to desire death. They want death. It's the difference between pledging one's allegiance to the God of life, the patron of the living, the benefactor of all that's good, and pledging one's life to the ruler of the abyss, the patron of death, the malefactor of all that is evil. And this kind of brings me back to where I left off last week in my sermon. There I was talking about encountering God in the, the daily, the usual, the day-to-day, -day, the mundane, the routine. And I was using this analogy of uh, the, the thin places of a com comic book, those tiny spaces between the panels full of action. And I suggested that for the majority of life, that's where God is mostly at work. Yes, we, we do have those big moments, those life-changing moments, mountaintop moments, but mostly God is just present between the panels in the thin spaces. And it's not really that those thin spaces need to be like widened. It's just that they have much more depth to them than most of us typically realize. And so this week I was thinking more about this and I was reminded about Celtic Christianity. And in Celtic Christianity, they've had this idea of thin places. It's a very prominent idea. In fact, that term thin place has its own Celtic phrase or word. It's a quail etch. And that, by the way, is our word of the week. A quail etch is a narrow or a thin place. It's a place where the gap between God and humans is practically non-existence. It's so thin, that gap, that it's basically unrecognizable. I've heard it said that in Celtic theology, there's a belief that the heavens and earth are only three, three feet apart. But in the thin places, that gap shrinks even more. Again, almost to non-existence. So for Celtic Christians, thin places were actually, they were actually physical places, like specific buildings or islands or spots in nature or something like that. And so many Celtic believers, they've been fond of making pilgrimages to these thin places where they believe that they'll encounter God in a profound way. 
Now, I get that. Physical places often carry a lot of great importance and significance in life. But for each of us, the, the thin places in this world, you know, they might be different. For you, maybe there's a physical place, an old uh, church, an old home, a, a specific lake or beach or a mountaintop, a hike, a graveyard, maybe. But I, I've been considering, that, that too, that just as much as there are thin places, there are thin times that are important to us. There are those times in life where, where God's presence has seemed more potent than others. And what's amazing is that with the gift of imagination and memory, we can take as many pilgrimages, internal pilgrimages, back to those times and places as we want. In fact, I would argue that way more often than we realize, the day-to-day, -day, the daily grind, those are thin places and thin moments in our lives. They are. Repentance is a thin moment, a thin place. Prayer, I think it's a thin moment, a thin place. Reading and studying scripture, it's a thin moment, a thin place. Closing the gap between heaven and earth, it's helping a neighbor, that's a thin moment, a thin place. Drawing close to a spouse in a thin moment, a thin place. Uh, l laughing with your children or loved ones, it can be a thin moment, a thin place. And in all of these thin moments and thin places, God is there. He's with us. He's looking after us. We are His bride. And that brings me back to the names of God, because there's one that indicates this very thing in Scripture. It's a Hebrew term, an Old Testament term applied to Jesus. Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Emmanuel is with us in the thin places. Emmanuel is the God of quail etch, the God of the thin places. So this week, I want to urge you to, to dwell on this concept. That, that is that we serve a thin place God, a thin time God. A God who closes the gap between the heavens and earth. A God who as long as Jesus is at the center or Jesus is the center, He draws near to us. And all we do, God desires to draw near to us. And we should desire to draw near to Him as, as His thin place disciples. And as we do, we'll be reminded that He is a God of life and that we are a people of life. So be attentive. For anyone who's, who's chasing after those things, it's a clear sign right? That they're part of Christ's bride. So we, we want to chase after these things. We want to wake Jesus up within us because, you know what, there's a lot of death and devastation around. We want to resist that. We want to, we want to look closely and listen closely and love intentionally in whatever thin place we happen to find ourselves in. We want to be thin place disciples who, wherever we go, close that gap between God and humans. And as a result, the people around us long to draw near to Him. Amen? Amen. Well, with that, I want to encourage you to receive this benediction. Uh, if you would, turn your palms upright in a posture of receiving. And now, may you be aware that wherever you are, God is there. May, may you be aware that today, in thin times and in thin places, Emmanuel, God is with you. The thin place God is with you. May you look, listen, feel, and strive to see in the midst of all of the hurt and pain and devastation surrounding you that He is near. And now, brothers and sisters, go into peace into the thin times and thin places and be a light. Amen? Amen. Go in peace, brothers and sisters.